Now we turn to the word of God. We're going to read first of all in the book of James. In the book of James. James chapter 3. James chapter 3, reading from the first verse. I'm reading from the... uh, uh, (coughs) from the New King James Version of the Scripture. And my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of, uh, and, uh, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water? And bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring can yield both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the, in the meekness of wisdom, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen. Turn with me to the Old Testament scriptures to the book of Ecclesiastes, 
Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So turn to the book of Ecclesiastes and we read from chapter 2. Ecclesiastes and the second chapter. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's madness. And of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired my male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. And we finish our reading at the 11th verse, and we trust that God will grant us understanding of his infallible and inerrant word. If you would open your Bibles at Psalm number 39. Psalm number 39. I'm not going to read it. We sung the first part of it, and then to close, we'll sing uh, the latter part of the psalm. Now, there is no time or occasion given for the writing of Psalm 39 but it does seem likely that it is a sequel to Psalm 38, which the psalmist demonstrates the distress and the anxiety that he is facing. In Psalm 38, he says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, for your arrows pierce me deeply, your hand presses me down, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger. 
and so on. He says, I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. He had been <clears throat> he had been deserted by his friends and threatened by his enemies, as we see in Psalm 38, verses 9 to 14. And these circumstances led him to plead for deliverance. In Psalm 39, he is still in distress, suffering great anxiety of soul as he considers and thinks about his own situation. And the first thing that we notice in this psalm is the conflict that he has in his mind. He makes a determined resolution as he reflects on his life and his present situation, perhaps thinking about all he had been going through, and some commentators suggest that a period of ill health had afflicted uh, the psalmist, as well as the opposition and the mockery of his enemies, and perhaps because of the chastisement of God. Because he says in Psalm 38, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Now whatever his situation was, he makes a resolution and the first resolution that he makes is to be careful about his conduct. I said, I will guard my ways. A very simple resolution. And surely this is a resolution that every child of God ought to make every day. When we get up in the morning, it should be the resolve of our minds and hearts to guard our ways. I will take heed to my ways. I will take heed to my ways in private where nobody else sees me. I will take heed of my ways in my home with my family. I would take heed to my ways at work where I'm possibly working with unbelievers. Because we have a nature that is sinful and because the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, it is very necessary for the child of God to keep David's resolution very much in mind. I wonder how often we have dishonored Christ and dishonored the name of Christ by unworthy conduct. When we fail to live as believers but mirror or ape the conduct of the world. But that's not all he made. That's not the only resolution that he made. 
he resolved to be especially careful with regard to his tongue. He says, Lest I sin with my tongue, I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. There is no way in which we are more likely to sin than with our words. As we read in the book of James, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. It is so easy to be careless or thoughtless with the use of the tongue. The Bible tells us just how important it is to control the tongue. The books of Psalms and Proverbs abound in cautions about speech. Proverbs 13 and 3. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Psalm 34 and verse 13, Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking guile or deceit. And the Lord Jesus Christ said this, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Have you ever thought of that? By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I wonder how many of our words in the past week have left us open to condemnation. And the book that has the most extensive words about the use of the tongue is the book of James. The book of James that we read, chapter 3, a little earlier. Let's look just for a moment at what James says. He says, first of all, that those who teach must be especially careful. Those who minister the word, those who teach the word in whatever capacity, are to be particularly careful and watchful about how and what they speak. Surely that applies to parents as they teach their children. It applies to those who teach in Sabbath school, those who take young people's meetings, those who minister the word. And the tongue, says James, is notoriously difficult to control and therefore requires much more diligence than other parts of the body. And James says this, and, and this should, I don't know, strike, I don't know, fear in our hearts and our minds. He says, a small spark 
can start a huge fire. Surely we've been seeing that on our television screens during this past week with all the wildfires in parts of Greece, some of which, it is alleged, have been started maliciously by a small fire, a spark. One writer puts it this way. He says, fire is painful. So are the burns caused by words. As fire burns, so do words. Fire spreads, so does gossip and evil speaking. Fire consumes, just so careless words consume character. As a small spark can start a huge fire, so can the tongue. The thing that will most and should most rebuke the child of God is this. What James says in verses 9 and 10. With it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. And surely we should take that to heart when we think about how we use our tongues. Here today, we sing praise to God. How will our tongue be used when we speak to or about other people tomorrow? Out of the, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. The psalmist was well aware of the danger that words could do, so he was determined to curb his tongue as with a bridle. Now the bridle is used to guide, direct, and control the horse. The tongue of the believer can be guided, directed, and controlled by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. I wonder, do we ever pray for grace to control our language? Do we ever pray for grace to speak only that which is good? He was going to be particularly careful in the presence of wicked men. And this is so important, especially when facing adverse circumstances. It is so easy to be unwise and to say hasty things which can ruin and destroy a testimony and can bring shame on the cause of Christ. David did not want to be guilty of giving his enemies ammunition to use against him or his God. So he makes a resolution. And then he resolves to be completely silent. He says, okay, I have to be careful about what I say, so therefore it's better for me to say nothing at all. 
I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, he says. So strong was his fear about sinning in his speech that he went even further than was necessary in order to protect and preserve his integrity. It could be said that his silence was commendable. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ was silent before his accusers. And there are occasions when the best policy is to be silent. We're told by the Lord Jesus Christ that we're not to cast our pearls before swine. That being said, taking the decision to hold his peace even from good was perhaps not the right thing to do. Matthew Henry says, the same law which forbids all corrupt communication requires that which is good and to the use of edifying. Ephesians 4 verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And so David is now in a, in a torment. He's in a mental torment. He doesn't want to sin. He doesn't want to speak foolishly. And so he says, I'll keep silent. But that caused a turmoil within him. He determined to bridle his tongue and to remain silent. But whilst his tongue was bridled, his thoughts were not it is not absolutely clear what the psalmist is, is meditating upon. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. And so he was, he was contemplating perhaps his situation, perhaps uh, what God was doing with him. We don't know. He may have been thinking about the situation he faced, the wrath of his enemies, his own sin, and the fact that perhaps he didn't have the, the felt presence of God with him. He may have had a sense of futility, wondering if there was any purpose to his life. There were undoubtedly many thoughts going around in his head and although he had determined to be silent, such was his concern and anxiety that they were building up like a fire within him and he could contain these emotions no longer. The second thing that we see here is the consequences of his, con of his conflict in verses 4 to 6. It is very significant that when the psalmist does speak, he doesn't speak to man, not to his brethren, his companions, or the ungodly. He speaks to God. And the request he made may seem on the surface to be rather strange. But on reflection, it is very wise and very important. Lord, make me to know my end 
and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Now we shouldn't think that this prayer of David meant that he was either seeking death or even to know the timing of his death. He simply wanted to have a proper awareness of what his life was and what the ultimate end would be. So many people live as though they are going to live forever with no thought whatsoever for what lies ahead of them. They plan for the future as though it was all within their own grasp. And James makes a comment on this foolish attitude. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time, then vanishes away. And there are a number of lessons that we can learn from David's prayer. First of all, a reminder of the shortness of life. Death is the end for both righteous and unrighteous alike. We may not like to think about it, but it is an ever-present reality. The only breath of which we can be sure is the one that we draw at this moment. Not one of us can guarantee how long we have on this earth. Such knowledge should concentrate the mind on eternal realities and life beyond this one. The second lesson we learn is that the time of our death is fixed in the counsel of Almighty God. Hebrews 9.27 it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. It is appointed. Not appointed by us, but appointed by God. It's God who appoints the time of our death. And although, as the Shorter Catechism reminds us, we are to be careful with the lives that God has given us, the Sixth Commandment, requireth all lawful endeavours to preserve our own life and the life of others. We need to constantly remind ourselves that the time of our passing is not in the hands of men, but of God. The third lesson we learn is that death is constantly working in us. That is to say that the corruption caused by sin is being manifested each succeeding day in sickness and in weakness. I cannot do the things that I did 20 years ago. I certainly can't do the things that I did 60 years ago. Every day, my body becomes weaker and death becomes 
a more present reality. But that should be so for all of us, young or old. Death is constantly working in us. And our life is measured as a hand's breadth. With the children, we saw these measurements. This is, although I mentioned the finger, normally the finger is mentioned, as it is in Jeremiah, of four fingers. In other words, a hand's breadth. The smallest Hebrew measurement. That's how our lives are measured. I'm thankful that God has given to me a long life. And I know that my life cannot continue that much longer. But whether we're young or old, our lives are in the hands of God. Our lives are measured as a hand's breadth, nothing in the light of eternity. And then in in verses 5 and 6, we have a reminder of the vanity of life. A secular definition of vanity is having an excessive pride in one's looks, appearance, status or abilities compared with other people. However, the biblical use of the word is used for emptiness, uselessness, or nothingness. And the psalmist here says that man is at best nothing more than a vapor that quickly passes away. Nothing in life is substantial and durable. That's what Solomon deals with in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And David here outlines this emptiness in different areas. His worldly joy and honor is vain. It quickly comes and can just as quickly depart. David reminds us that every man, rich or poor, wise or foolish, are in the same category. At best, in the full vigor of youth or at the height of their power and influence, they are nothing but vapor, insubstantial and fading. People are so easily moved in our emotional state by the changing circumstances of life. When we are appreciated or commended for something that we have done, the world seems to be a very pleasant place. But when we are criticized or condemned, even when we have done no wrong, everything seems to be dark and horrible. And David reminds us that worrying is in vain. He cannot change much of what he worries about. As it says in Matthew 6, 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Some people are very prone to worry. They worry about the economy. They worry about the state of the country. 
And of course there are things that the, that the Christian should pray about. But simply to worry about them is futile. We can't change them. His gathering of riches is vain. David speaks of those who toil to amass riches and do not know who will gather them. The same kind of sentiments are expressed by Solomon in Ecclesiastes. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I looked again in Ecclesiastes on all the works that my hands had done and on all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Now God created men to work, and work is a means by which we can glorify God. But work and the financial rewards of work must never be an end in themselves or it can very quickly become an idol and idolatry is foolishness and vanity. Isaiah 44 and verse 9 Those who make an image, all of them are useless and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses they neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Now, if God is pleased to give us a measure of wealth, it should cause us to abound in thankfulness for his goodness and mercy and to seek to please him all the more and to depend upon him more consciously than ever. Then in the final verses 7 to 13, as he reflects on the brevity of life and the vanity of life, it's perhaps no surprise that he turns his thoughts towards God and the delights and comforts that can only be found in him. It is a sad fact that when the pleasures of the world begin to pall, many people have no recourse but to seek more or different pleasures or to fall into depression or despair. They do not realize or even wish to know that the only solution to the emptiness of life is to be found in God and in God alone. David expresses his confidence in God when his brought face to face with the foolishness and emptiness of the world, he asked the question, what do I wait for? The implication being that there was nothing that the world had to offer that was worth waiting for. It was all vanity anyway. And with this understanding, he acknowledged that his only hope was in God. The world and all that it has to offer is empty and vain, the only place to find solutions, comfort, and assurance is the God who is eternal and unchanging. So he expresses his confidence in God 
and then his commitment to God. When he turns to God, he is silent before him because he recognizes that all that was taking place in his life, the lives of those around him, was in the hand of the living God who does all things well. The simple acknowledgement, it was you who did it. It was you who did it. My distress, the opposition of the enemy, everything that seemed bad, it was you who did it. There's an astounding example of submissiveness to God in 1 Samuel chapter 3. You remember the story. You remember Samuel had grown up in the temple. He had been looked after by Eli. He had been nurtured and taught by Eli. Samuel had a dream. In the morning, Eli went to him and he said, what did, what did God say to you? And he was reluctant to say. And then Eli eventually urged him to tell him. And Samuel had to tell, uh, tell this man who had cared for him and nurtured him. He had to say, the message that God gave to me was that your household is going to be destroyed. Your sons are going to be destroyed. And you know what Samuel, you know what Eli said? He said, it is the Lord. Let him do as seems good to him. It is the Lord. Let him do as seems good to him. Are we able to say that? When sickness comes, when death comes, when unhappy circumstances come into our lives, are we able to say, it is the Lord, let him do as seems good to him? Or these circumstances may not seem good to us, but God has a purpose for everything that he does and David recognized that he says towards the end of this psalm hear my prayer O Lord give ear to my cry do not be uh, do not be silent at my tears for I am a stranger with you a sojourner as all my fathers were Remove your gaze from me, that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. Even before he asks for his difficult situation to improve, he asks for forgiveness for sin. And surely that's the first step. Even if the circumstances of life are not the direct result of particular sin, the fact remains that such is our sinful state before God that we deserve infinitely more punishment and judgment than that which we receive. 
If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? With that, time has gone. I finish. It's a psalm that reminds us that the life that we have here is full of trouble and anxiety. And yet God is not absent. God orders the affairs of our life as it pleases him. Our life may seem to be long, but in the context of eternity, it is but a hand breath. It is so short. How many years we live on this earth is not in our hands, it's in the hand of our sovereign God. The question is, how are you going to spend that life that God gives you? How are you going to use those years that God gives you here on this earth? For yourself? For your pleasure? Or for the glory of God and the honor of Christ? Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious God, be pleased to take what has been of yourself and apply it to our hearts. We thank you that you are the sovereign God. We thank you that you are the one who orders all things in accordance with your own wise counsel. O oh Lord our God, help us, help us we pray, to be careful about how we live. Help us to be careful about how we speak. Help us, Heavenly Father, to live for the honor and glory of you. Help us to live to exalt Christ. And help us, O Lord God, to recognize the brevity and the vanity of this life, that we might have our eyes fixed upon heaven and upon eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.